Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 53. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. This week's episode is all about obscure cartoons of yesteryear. I am joined by special guest, webcomics creator, Luke Foster, as we both go back to the old school to tell you about some cartoons that you may have completely forgot about, never heard of, or just stuff that's just a little strange. So sit back, reminisce in your childhood, get that big bowl of Lucky Charms and sit in front of the TV like you just got home from school and enjoy this week's show. Before we do that, I just want to let everyone know that Action Lab Entertainment, the company I work for, will have an island at the CGS Super Show or the Comic Geek Speak Super Show. And just what is the Comic Geek Speak Super Show? Well, it's a comic book convention with a focus on creators and artists. The show is two days. It is April 30th through May 1st. And you can find more information on the show at cgssupershow.com and comicgeekspeak.com. It's a great show. Last year, uh, I had the PKD Media Island at Super Show, and it was just a wonderful time. And this year, it's the Action Lab Island. And at the Action Lab Island, we will have eight tables of excitement ready for you. We will have Action Lab artists Chad Ciccone, Andrew Charpar, and Daniel J. Logan. We will also have Donnie Salvo in his world of 50 Cent Comics. You can dive into his long boxes of comics and get some great comics on the cheap. We will also have, let's see, Artist Supreme, the Ric Flair, styling and profiling of webcomics, the glyph-nominated Julian Lytle of the hit webcomic Ants. He's a fantastic artist. You've heard him on the show many a times. I can't say enough good things about him. He will be there in the Action Lab Island, as well as super artist Andy Jewett. He will be there as well. You've also heard him like on an old episode of the PKD Black Box. So he'll be there as well. They'll be doing sketches, doing all types of stuff. Go see them at the Action Lab Island. Also at the Action Lab Island, I will be there hustling Action Lab wares. We will have such things as Fracture Issue 1, the convention edition, for $3.99. We'll have the original graphic novel back in the day. We'll have the Space Time Condo uh, Special Edition Volume 2. We will also have um, Action Lab buttons, Action Lab t-shirts, which are quite kick-ass, by the way. You'll love them. As soon as you see them, you'll say, I want one. So we're going to have a bunch of Action Lab swag just for you at the show to come pick up. Also, because I can't forget about, you know, where it all started from with PKD Media, there will be a special section at the Action Lab Island for PKD Media where the new chief of PKD Media, Mike Imboden, the creator of Fist of Justice, along with artist Ryan Miller. They will have a a section of the Action Lab Island to show off Mercury and the Murd Volume 2, Down and Dirty. 
There were all the PKD wares, like copies of Mercury and the Murd Volume 2, copies of Mercury and the Murd Volume 1, which will be on sale real cheap, uh, copies of Agents of Cult Volume 1, they'll also be on sale for cheap, as well as Mercury and the Murd buttons, Agent of Cult buttons, also all types of additional swag like Mercury and the Murd badge IDs, trading card sets, and a Mercury and the Murd poster print. All types of good stuff. Mike Bowden is running the show at PKD Media now. He's going to get that shipped together now that I'm over at Action Lab doing my thing. Um, so it's going to be a really great time. Please stop by the show. All types of artists and creators there. Cats like Mike Norton, Katie Cook, Danielle Corsetto. Just, just like just a numerous amount of talent at this show. So go to cgssupershow.com, comicgeekspeak.com. And go check it out and come out to Reading, Pennsylvania and enjoy this two-day celebration that's all about comics, creators, and art. Also, there are vendors there with uh, cheap comics. So it's a, it's a good home show. It's a good home show. It's like seeing old friends again. Check it out. One last thing. There is a website out there that I think you need to see called Long Boxes on 22s. Long Boxes on 22s, which can be found, all one word, Long Boxes L-O-N-G-B-O-X-E-S, the letter O-N-2-2-S.tumblr.com. Longboxes on 22s.tumblr.com. According to the website, it is the greatest amalgamation of comic books, pop culture, and album cover artwork your eyes will ever witness. And what it is, it takes comic book, uh, comic book characters, cartoon characters, and hip-hop album covers and merges all of them together. Like, say, for instance... Um, you take the old school Ghetto Boys, We Can't Be Stopped a album cover. And on this website, artists Julian Lytle and Sean Cosley have taken that and they've turned it into the Ghetto Gods with Galactus, Unicron, and, and a Dark Side posing just like the Ghetto Boys did on the album cover. It says, Ghetto Gods, We Can't Be Stopped. It is one of the most clever artistic things I've seen in a while and it's just fun they did a Superman album called uh, Dr. Soups instead of Dr. Dre it's Dr. Soups the Kryptonite <laughs> which is amazing they did a uh, Superboy cover which mocks uh, Drake's Thank Me Later oh they also did a Peter Parker cover which is reminiscent of a very famous Nas album there are also these reviews of these albums that have supposedly been made that have been written by uh, Nathan Zimmer Jackson and a slew of other writers. But the main people putting long boxes on 22s together are Julian Lytle and Sean Cosley. I've mentioned their names a number of times and they're just fantastic people and fantastic artists. And I like what they're doing here because they're making comics fun. They're making art and hip hop something that I just think you need to see. So check it out. And I'll put I'll put the show notes on the uh, on the site, but longboxes on 22s.tumblr.com. Once again, longboxes on 22s.tumblr.com. And now, our feature presentation. I'm on the line right now with a gentleman whose credits include, uh, he's the creator of Moon Freight 3. He is the creator of the Gang from the Store, both web comics. Also, he is the co-host of the Incredible Hulk cast and a co-host of The Trip, which can be found at comicbooknoise.com, right? Yeah, comicbooknoise.com or deliberatenoise.com. Deliberate Noise is the network that all, those, all the shows are on. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you 
Luke Foster. Luke, how you doing, sir? I am doing fantastic, sir, and how are you? You know, doing good, man. I cannot complain. Uh, some of you may remember Luke Foster when PKD Media was posting comics on a on a semi-daily basis. Um, he had a series called The Gang from the Store, which were tales from a comic shop, and he did that for a set period of time. It aired on the weekends, and not only in the midst of you being a webcomic person, um, I mean, creating webcomics and also doing podcasting, do a little bit of stand-up on the side. One, A couple reasons why we wanted to have you here. One, for the listeners that are listening to this episode right now, we're going to talk about some cartoons, but not just any cartoons. We're going to take it to the obscure or the possibly forgotten or just to that realm of what the hell are you talking about? And these are the cartoons we're going to talk about. And some of them you may know, especially from the 90s uh, when we had the big boom of syndicated cartoons. But we're going to talk about those cartoons that you may have forgotten, you didn't know about, or sort of obscure, or something that you just slept on. I had to bring Luke on for that because, you know, this man is a cartoon fanatic like myself. So that's, what, that's why I brought him on for this episode. But before we do that, you have a book that's coming out really soon. Would you, t- would you like to tell the people about said book? Yeah, uh, it is uh, Moon Freight 3 Volume 1, Clock Punchers in Space. It collects the entire first year of MF3, uh, a.k.a. the black and white year. It's a 96-page soft cover with, in addition to the first year, it's got about 10 pages of behind-the-scenes sketches from uh, from that time period. Character tryouts or set designs I was fiddling around with. Um, so it's available now on IndiePlanet.com, and I have ordered my show copies, which should be getting to me any day now. I'm waiting for actually my physical copies to be in my hand. It's the first year. The strip is almost three years old, so it'll get you the first large chunk of stuff out of the way. I'm really excited. I'll have it. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of conventions this year, and I'll have it with me then. If you're curious, uh, Moon Freight Three is a it's a science fiction comedy webcomic. It was basically my thoughts about what what it would be like in to be in a future in a science fiction setting, but to be just a common guy, not to be like the world's greatest starship captain or you know like some prophesied Jedi who's going to save the universe and bring enlightenment and all that stuff i just want to be like you know just like you know what it'd be like to be a blue collar schmo uh in in outer space it's you could say that it's a refined dilbert in outer space because it's not dilbert it's something completely different but if in layman's terms would like the average joe on on the street see it that way yeah yeah it's like a blue collar dilbert almost because dilbert deals like a lot of you know working in an office in a corporate setting and this is more you deal with it, it deals with a lot of the same you know like you know worker doldrums and manager crap but you know it's a lot you know there's a lot of talk about unions and and just dealing with the day-to-day drudgery of that kind of job, like something, like a job you may not have wanted to have, but you kind of got stuck in that you know you're better than that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. Yes, yes, indeed. Was there anything else that you had wanted to plug? But before we uh, go further, sir, I can say that uh, the uh, you can get well, like I said, you can get that on indieplanet.com, and uh, you can also get the uh, the gang from the store complete collection which uh, on Indie Planet as well. And uh, if you want to listen to uh, my podcast where I don't talk about my webcomic, uh, I do the Hulkcast once a month with uh, my buddy Ryan King. We talk about the months uh, that each month's Hulk issues and any trade paperbacks or other stuff we get out. Um, and since they're putting out a ton of Hulk books this this uh, last couple of years, we're never at a loss for topics. <laughs> the trip also discusses it's nostalgic stuff from our past, like you know, kind of like what we're going to be doing today with, but with not just cartoons. 
It's like movies or TV shows or things that we did that were fun when we were kids. It often devolves into, you know, just us making fun of each other. And by us, I mean me and uh, my co-host, Keith Cunningham. Uh, Ryan, my Hulkcast host, is also on the trip, but he's the most mature of the three of us. Um, which is kind of like saying you're the tallest midget in the room, but, you know, it, it's, it's still, it's, you know. Yes. He, he can keep us on the straight and narrow sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. The trip is bi-weekly. It alternates with the Geek Brunch on the Geek Brunch feed. Yeah, you can find, like we said earlier, you can find that at Deliberate Noise Network. And you can read Moon Freight 3 every Monday, Wednesday, Friday in full color now at moonfreight3.com. Let's go ahead and get to the meat of today's show. Sure thing. All right. As I said before, we're going to talk about cartoons that you have either A, forgotten about, B, maybe obscure, off the wall, or just what the... So, I tell you what, Luke, seeing that you're the guest, why don't you go ahead and go first, sir? All right. Should I start off with my weirdest cartoon, or or should I go with something a little more mainstream? You know what? Just, just, just start off weird, man. Just go weird. go weird. Okay. My first cartoon didn't even get to be a Saturday morning cartoon. It was a Sunday morning cartoon, <laughs> and it was called Fantastic Max. Oh it was this cartoon about this baby who is made self-aware by this space alien who decided who disguised himself as his toy, and he went off and had adventures in space with this alien and one of his plastic uh, action figure type toys that uh, the alien also brought to life. It was it was just it was this you know it's kind of this weirdo thing where the baby went off into space and had adventures with his two alien buddies and. And, yeah, kind of what you'd expect from that. The baby would often complain about his filthy diaper, and, <laughs> and, and sometimes his sister would try to cause trouble, and other times people would try to expose him as being a self-aware baby. And, but, you know, the good guys always won in the end. It ran for uh, just two seasons, 88 and 89, and only uh, 13 episodes each. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was from the wonderful world of Hanna-Barbera, which used to run on Sundays in a lot of areas, because I remember that. I, that show I do remember because they would package it with like a bunch of shows, whether it be like a Yogi Bear show or or, or like various other cartoons like Johnny Quest when Johnny, Chris had the, uh, Johnny Quest had the rock dude with him. Uh, yep, you yep. Know, and that rock looking dude. So I remember the fantastic world, a wonderful world of Hanna Barbera on the weekends because it always came on after Cartoon Express on USA. And so if I didn't want to watch wrestling, that one hour wrestling, you know, in the gap between Kung Fu Theater, I would watch, the, you know, the Hanna-Barbera stuff for a while and then come back and watch some Kung Fu Theater. So <laughs> I like how the alternatives are the talking baby or wrestling. Oh, oh exactly. You know, because like when I was a kid, I was like, OK, I'm like, if Junkyard Dog's not wrestling, I'm not watching this week. <laughs> so, you know, so like I would have like my cousin in the basement watching watching wrestling because he would watch all the time. And I, even though I was a fan, I'm like, I only wanted to watch certain wrestlers when I was a kid. So I told him, I was like, look, if Hogan's not on, I said, if Macho Man's not on or whoever, I was like, if Junkyard Dog's not on, don't even bug me. I was like, if they <laughs> show up, you come get me. Oh, okay. So he just start watching. And he was like the, he was the, he's the wrestling alarm. Besides that, I would just watch the cartoons and the kung fu. I'm legitimately surprised you, anybody other than me, has heard of this cartoon because I didn't even remember it until I was starting to do uh, research for this. And like, 
I think some random clip on YouTube just triggered the memory. Um, well, I think what freaked me out, not that it freaked me out, it was just bizarre because that was the era where Muppet Babies was one of the biggest draws, you know, in animated television, especially on, you know, Saturday mornings. It was a huge draw, um, which was amazing. The amount of, um, the amount of seasons that show was on merely from the simple fact that there were really no toys for Muppet Babies. None. There were some, um... McDonald's Muppet Baby toys. I had some of those. Yep. I used to have. I used to have like there's these used to be dudes like in seventh eighth grade that would like take the Kermit Muppet Baby that had the skateboard and take Kermit and give him a scar around his eye, and then like paint up a, <laughs> then paint up a skateboard and make him like a skater dude. But <laughs> the result of Muppet Babies, I think, had a big play in the creation of Fantastic Max because once again, you had a child who's self-aware, just like Muppet Babies, who talked to Nanny all the time, and they, you know, self-aware children Muppets that were self-aware and talking with with Barbara Billingsley every week, and you've got you know Fantastic Max that has like you know the robot, the space adventures, and all this other stuff. So if you don't, to me, if you don't have Muppet Babies, you don't have Hanna Barbera creating Fantastic Max. I but it was. It's, it was extremely bizarre. It was the strangest show. I mean, they built like that alien thing whose name was FX, voiced by uh, Bart Simpson, voice Nancy Cartwright. Mm-hmm. His magic power was like just their catch-all get-out. Like they, every night, the thing would like they'd make a rocket rocket ship out of out of sand that was like a like, like a baby bottle, mm-hmm. and then use his magic and turn it into a ship, and they just go fly off. And if anybody ever noticed, anybody ever noticed, they just mind wiped the dude. <laughs> or, you know, his sister. That's <laughs> definitely during a time where people were just like, you know what? I got an idea. Do it. And it was just done. There, there, mm-hmm. there, were, no, there were no second guessing. There, no, no second guesses. Plus, during that period of time, Hanna-Barbera wasn't everywhere. That was, this was during the period of time where they were not on the outs, but they didn't really have a home. Because if you really think about it, Hanna-Barbera was the home to CBS, ABC. Um, from time to time, you may have saw some on, on NBC. They were the Yankees of cartoons because they were producing cartoons for every network from the 70s to the early 80s. They were the home run hitters. So everybody oh, yeah. went to them. So that's why you had like 40 Scooby-Doo type shows where you have families solving crime and playing music because everybody wanted it but you know they oh. All, oh sorry go ahead i was gonna say i just thought of another cartoon ad to my list <laughs> oh there you Cause go because you, you said that because you're like <laughs> yeah the families of crime fighting people with the talking animal i'm like oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah and, you know that you know stuff like that they had you know a ton of flintstone clones you know it just all type all types of stuff but there was a period of time where financially they were kind of on the outs so production wise they also became on the outs the result of that was you know they put all you know, all their eggs in one basket for a while because you know they had been bought and per you know, bought and sold, bought and sold, bought and sold, you know, by so many different people. Eventually, you know, they're like, okay, there was a small period of time where they were somewhat stable, and they're like, well, the only way we can compete is if we put the show together. That wonderful, fantastic world of Hanna Barbera show. That was the only way they could kind of compete for a while. If it wasn't for you know Ted Turner and and those guys buying the um, Hanna Barbera catalog, who, who knows what could have happened to Hanna Barbera? Because now all that stuff's Warner Brothers. It's all Cartoon Network, Boomerang, and all that stuff. So now it has a permanent home. I was going to say the Cartoon Network would have been airing sixteen hours of test patterns for their first couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Because so, oh, go ahead. I was going to say also what was. Like you just like totally just casually name dropped Barbara Billingsley as being nanny on the Muppet Babies. I had no freaking clue. Man, you don't understand. When I was a kid, hey, 
I I knew that was Mrs. Beaver <laughs> or Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. I'm sorry, I knew that was Mrs. Cleaver. I knew that. <laughs> not Mrs. Beaver's Mrs. Cleaver. So I just always be glad I'm not Donnie Selva right now after dropping that one. Yeah, yeah, he would get me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would definitely get me on that. One. But yeah, man. See, plus when I was a kid, I was the weird kid that read the credits at the end of uh-huh. the cartoon. So I would always see Barbara Barbara Billingsley's name, Frank Welker who was like, you know, he, you know, a heavy in the uh, voice in the voiceover industry for cartoons. There was an artist and I remember this artist because every time he wrote his name, he would put an exclamation point at the end. And I think his name was Scott Shaw. And yep. and so every time he every time he did something, whether any kind of kind of cartoon that he was a part of, production wise, any comic art, he would all he would always make sure there was an exclamation point at the end of his name. And I've never forgotten that. Nice. Fantastic Max was weird. And I just really didn't know even you know when I was a kid, I didn't know who that cartoon was supposed to cater to. <laughs> I just assumed kids because it was a cartoon. Yeah. And also, like, it, it, it running on Sunday meant it didn't have a whole heck of a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, it was either wrestling or if you weren't into wrestling, it was this, kind of. I got one for you. All right. This was during the era where network television like Fox, CBS, ABC, NBC actually gave a damn about putting on cartoons on Saturdays uh-huh. before they just gave up. <laughs> um, and this cartoon also, also what's weird is this was also during a period of time where Disney didn't rely on their own networks to show their content. This cartoon was actually used on purpose as a platform for a show called Bonkers. Bonkers was a show about like some type of bobcat who was an actor, kind of like Roger Rabbit, who finally was out of Hollywood and had to deal with the fact that he had to have a real job. So he became like a cop or something, if memory serves me right. I, it's, it's been a while since I watched Bonkers, but... No, that was pretty much the case. Okay, cool. But before they came out with the Bonkers show... Word on the street is because like with stuff with Wikipedia and the internet, you can only take you can only take, you know, their words for, you know, for so much. Word on the street was was that Michael Eisner wanted to use raw tunage as a platform for bonkers for his quote unquote cartoonish or acting episodes to prove that like he had a history before he got kicked out of Hollywood in the actual bonkers TV show. And from that came a car in that in, in that cartoon that had Bonkers shorts, Bonkers the Bobcat shorts, along with Marsupilami shorts, which was a Belgian comic strip that Disney bought the rights to to have a cartoon of, as well as some satirical cartoons, was a show called Raw Tunage. Oh, okay. Um, wow, I I totally missed out on that one. Honestly, um, it's possibly one of the best Disney cartoons that nobody knew about. In my personal opinion, it was it was good for the following reasons, like the bonkers, like the bonkers shorts, standard like Tom and Jerry, Roger Rabbit type content, which was cool, which was fine. The Marsupilami cartoon, once again, Marsupilami was this was an animal. He's like he was yellow with uh, black polka dots and a really long tail. And so what basically he had like all these adventures in the in the jungle. And I imagine like from the old school Popeye cartoons like uh, Eugene the Jeep, the little character dude that just like looked weird and give him like a really long tail and paint him yellow with uh, 
black polka dots. That's Marsupilami. And he had Adventures in the Jungle. So you would have one Bonkersly Bobcat cartoon, one Marsupilami cartoon, and then you would have a cartoon that was very satirical. And it was called Totally Tasteless Video. And those Totally Tasteless Video spots were actually edited by a gentleman by the name of Tom Mitten. And Tom Mitten, Minton, I'm sorry, mispronounce your name, sir, Minton, ended up eventually writing a lot of the Pinky and the Brain episodes over at Warner Brothers. And so what they would do is they would like parody upcoming movies, they would do spoofs on TV shows, and they would also crack on animation trends from like yesteryear. And every episode of Raw Tunage was hosted by a Disney star, whether it be Launchpad McQuack, uh, Scrooge McDuck, uh, let's see who else. Uh, oh, the crazy, uh, the crazy duck that was the psychiatrist. I can never remember his name. Oh, um, Ludwig von Drake. Yes, Ludwig von Drake, or or, or Captain Hook, or um, Goofy. So, and it always had a host. So Sebastian the Crab even hosted an episode. Jeez. So there were only twelve episodes. They were commissioned for thirteen. But the 13th episode was never completed. It ran from September 12th, 1992 till December 5th, 1992. And the whole purpose of the series was to prove that Bonkers the Bobcat actually had canon, a canon worth of episodes as proof that he was a quote unquote superstar before they aired the actual Bonkers solo series. Wow, this is... This, there's, there's a level of innovation and thought to this cartoon that I don't think they had since Walt was alive. Yeah. This is amazing. I want to see this now. Yeah, you, you can't find it on DVD. Um, one, another reason why you may never get it on DVD is the simple fact that Disney no longer has the rights to Marsupilami because what happened ah. was they got the rights to use the character. The show ended. Then they started rerunning the uh, episodes of Raw Tunage years later on the Disney Channel and Toon Disney, and they were running these shorts, supposedly. Supposedly, they were running the shorts after the, after the rights to Marsupilami had expired. So the creator of Marsupilami and stuff like that got, got to Disney and said, hey, what are you doing? You're not paying me. So, uh, you know, you either cough up the cash or you turn it off. So it stopped. So I don't know if you'll ever, ever, ever see it on on DVD. I'm sure somebody will have it on in the bootleg sector somewhere because you can't stop the bootleggers. But yeah, wow. raw tunage. Like as far as voices go, um, cats like Charlie Adler, Nancy Cartwright, Rita Moreno, Tress McNeil, a lot of people. Dave Thomas, no, SCTV Dave Thomas, not not the, the the late Wendy's Dave Thomas. Oh, forget it then. I don't want to see it. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, all ty- all types of folks, man. So yeah, raw tunage. My next one is actually a foreign one thing I used to watch all the time when I was on Saturday mornings. This is called The Comic Strip. It was an American animated series. I'm just reading this right from Wikipedia, as you can tell. It was an American animated (laughs) series with four rotating cartoon segments in 30-minute blocks. The four cartoons that were in it were The Mini Monsters, which is a summer camp for, like, child versions or uh, or the, the children of the uh, universal monsters street frogs which was a kind of a comedy about uh street smart hip-hop kind of frogs who you know lived in a uh 
in a uh, it was like an anthropomorphic kind of world, mm-hmm. and uh, there was also musical numbers in each one. We go, we go, we gonna uh, talk about them street frogs. I just want to let you know we are gonna talk about that, but please continue. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. There was Karate Cat, who was a cat who uh, was a cop, who also could turn into like a kind of like a karate guy. He would just say some like catchphrase, and he would turn into like him, but wearing like a white karate uniform. Mm-hmm. The, the, the proper name of which I can't remember at the moment. And then Tiger Sharks, which is kind of the most action adventure was about human-fish hybrids who had adventures and kind of fought evil underwater, which was my favorite of the four. Yes. A lot of good fun. It was a, why, it was a weird mix of stuff, too. I mean, you had, like, the straight-up adventure stuff, like, of the Tiger Sharks. Karate Cat was kind of the in-between between the two, uh, the between the humorous stuff and the action stuff, and then you had like the straight-up comedy. Yeah, so, it was um, one of those heavy anthology sh- anthology shows when a lot of when a lot of production companies said, you know what, what's the best way to sell all this? If we can't sell a show individually, let's just mix it up and give people a bunch of stuff and. We'll see, you know, what buzz, what what buzz we get most out of, and if we, even if it's equal, we'll just leave it all as is. But um, if not, we'll take the most popular thing and run with it. Yep, and uh, yeah, they, they, the episodes were only about ten minutes long each. So they, you know, or the the segments were like ten minutes long. You so they got in, got out, and you know, they were done. It went sixty five episodes, but only for like a like a year, like uh, September eighty seven to December eighty seven. Yeah. So maybe they count. Each segment as an episode, I'm not really sure. It's it, kind it, of confusing. It all depends. If you go, if you go by Wikipedia, you got to be careful because sometimes the numbers don't add up. They really don't here. Um, so you really got to be careful. I remember the comic strip because that aired every Saturday on um, the local, well, which would now be a Fox affiliate, but before it was an f- actual Fox affiliate, it was just its own station, like Channel 19, uh, WXIX in Cincinnati, and that was a Rankin Bass cartoon. And because it was Rankin Bass, you know, people that made Thundercats, Silverhawks, and all that stuff, I kind of knew what kind of animation to expect out of certain things, like Karate Cat, I knew what to expect. Tiger Sharks, I really knew what to expect out of that. And I thought Tiger Sharks was great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you could say they're definitely, it's definitely, you know, taking a bite out of the Thundercats and Silverhawks template, but it was still really cool. And I really enjoy I really enjoy those adventures. The one with the monster camp that was not my favorite. I would normally, if I recorded that, I would fast forward through that. For, you know, I fast forward through that immediately. To me, Karate Cat was the new age Hong Kong Fui. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, he, he was the new age Hong Kong Fui, but I loved it because I love karate. So there you go. Now, as far as the street frogs go, when I was a kid, I thought that was cool. Oh, these kids, you know, living in the quote unquote urban area. Because they wouldn't, they wouldn't call it the ghetto. They just say it was the urban area. And they wanted to rap, break dance, and they just wanted to have, make, have their big break. And as a kid, I thought that was really cool because, like, hey, they're trying to talk to me. I looked at that now. I'm like, this is some of the biggest bullshit I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, you had a bunch of like 30-something-year-old white dudes. It's like, how we talk to black kids? I know. <laughs> we put them in Adidas jumpsuits, and, and we make them talk with street slang and listen to the hippity hop, and they're going to love it. <laughs> and as a, seeing as a kid, I didn't know better. And you, and you get a little older, yeah. You get you get a little bit more cynical. You get a little bit more grown. Yes, there are things from my childhood I still love and I can still watch, no matter how silly. But there's a line of fucking ridiculousness that I just cannot stand for. And I'm like, who gave this the green light? 
you know. <laughs> so, so you know, to this day, anytime I see like street frogs, I'm like, you know what? They probably thought it was a good idea at the time. They really did. But you watch that now. One, it comes off super dated, and two, it's just like honestly. I knew you were really trying, but you really should have talked to a black dude or a black woman before you made that shit. So well, let's let's list off the character names just for fun. Okay. There was Big Max, Spider, Moose the Loose, Honey Love Loretta, and Doctor Slick. <laughs> <laughs> Moose the Loose. That's the one I remember most. Moose the Loose. The Street Frogs, I can't give a pass to. At least with my next pick, I can give the pass to because it was trying its best to bring in hip hop culture. The Kid and Play cartoon. Oh, man. Because the Kid and Play cartoon did not have step. And I'm going to tell you why. First off, the show started with the Kid and Play music rolling with Kid and Play. And they was doing the little dance like they were doing the movie. And I'm like, first off, that got me hype as hell. So I was already ready to watch the cartoon. And they actually had Kid and Play in the cartoon. Like in the beginning of the show, they have like a little little live action segment. Basically telling you what the moral of of, uh, this week's episode is going to be. And then they would start the show. And you had Kid and Play doing just whatever they normally do like they would do in any of their silly movies and and then at the end the episode would be done and then sometimes at the end of the episode where they go back to the live action you might get like a quick little cameo but like say for instance Spinderella from salt and pepper or whoever but i just remember every time i watched that cartoon i got hyped and it was not the greatest cartoon but at least it tried to appreciate hip-hop culture at the time every time that there was like a school dance or like a party Everybody was was always doing the running man because that was always the easiest thing to animate because you just put that on loop. <laughs> but I love that cartoon. You know, I loved it because they were just like, we're not half-assing it. We're going to put everything that people know about Kid and Play in this cartoon. And when that music hit, I lost it, completely lost it. And I just loved it. There was even a Kid and Play comic book based off that cartoon um, that, that Marvel put out, I think through Star Comics. When Marvel was putting out like 275 titles a month instead of 135 titles a month, you know, during that time, it was just during the big comics boom and it was just crazy. But yeah, there really isn't much to say about the kid and play cartoon, because if you watched House Party, House Party 2, that's when we're going to leave it. Oh. I, I, you know, I'll leave it with those or any of the other kid and play movies. Just take elements from those movies, make it for kids and you're done. That's all there is to it. And uh, you know, and it was short-lived. I think it was probably 13 episodes, and this was toward the end of the NBC era where NBC was still somewhat investing in cartoons, but they were about to pull the plug and start cutting budgets on cartoons because for some reason there's a saying that if you don't have a toy for a cartoon, how does a cartoon make money? And to which I say, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of have you know mixed feelings about. It. I mean, yes, I've I've studied television, I've studied entertainment to a point, but once again, Muppet Babies is a perfect example. They never really had toys. Yeah, they had ancillary ancillary products, not many, but that show was on for probably I think I want to say close to a decade. Okay, uh, I think it was like six years. I think it was longer than that. If you, if if you count the fact that like CBS kept it in its lineup. Toward the end, like around like the twelve o'clock time, 
when they didn't even make new episodes. They just kept it on. Um, and I may be wrong. I, I might be incorrect. You might be right. Six years. But it was on for that long with no toys. So there's a way to make money. And, and to me, if I was a network and I said, okay, I got this show. It generated X amount of advertising revenue and everybody wants to advertise on it. To me, that's a good enough deal to go back to those producers and say, here's some cash, make me some more. The yeah. end. The thing, though, with Muppet Babies, though, that had the, the, the juggernaut that was Jim Henson behind it. I mean, that guy could spin straw into gold. So you could have a cartoon like Muppet Babies without having a lot of toy tie-ins. Yeah. Because, it, you know, people could just go, they'd go watch the movies or they would, you know, they'd also watch, go watch Fraggle Rock or anything like that. So, I mean, there was a lot of just Jim Henson-ness to a cartoon like that. But no, I also do agree with you to a point. I mean, like, how does any TV show stay on the air? Advertisers. I mean, that's what commercials are for. Right. And that's why they were invented, for goodness sake. Exactly. And now, now I know, like you know, we all watch television differently now. But there are still ways that even advertise, you know, without TV, whether it be you watch from the internet, whether you be whether you watch from your iPad, mobile device, or what have you, or whether it's shot into your brain, I don't care. There's always a way to make money off of this stuff, especially nowadays. And I know that there is a decline as far as toys go, unless you go to a Toys R Us and you see every single toy that's out there. If you go to a department store, the toy section is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And you would think that a lot of these toy di uh, distributors and toy makers and toy companies would advertise a little bit more heavily their, their product because, you know, I'll see Ben 10 commercials. I've seen a couple of Generator Rex commercials. You, I'll always see a Star Wars commercial because as long as they make a toy, there will be a commercial for it. I don't see G.I. Joe toy commercials. Now, granted, the stuff sells with, with without commercials, but... I don't see commercials for that. Like the DC action figure line, I don't see commercials for that. The Marvel action line, I don't see commercials for that. And that was the type of stuff that would really sell on Saturday mornings because there was, after, there was a certain period of time like in the 80s where the, the rule was lifted that you, know, you didn't have to worry about you know, you, that you couldn't sell toys, you couldn't sell you know, candy and cakes and all that stuff. That rule was like up, it was lifted. In the, in, the, in the, I want to say the early 80s, because like from like in the 70s, you had to draw a fine line between advertising and between advertising and a cartoon. So like if you had a cartoon playing, they pretty much like parent groups were saying that kids are so stupid, they can't tell when a cartoon ends and when a commercial starts. Well, kids are stupid. I mean, but yeah. <laughs> I just want to see what you'd say to that. Oh, no. But no, I mean, I think, I think they actually actually had to put that law back into effect in the 80s because the 80s got so bad as toy advertisements and the cartoons. It's basically all they were back then. Oh, yeah, but but see, but because of that, though, you got some of the greatest, not only some of the greatest toys, but some of the greatest independent creations ever. And, and that's an era that you will possibly never see again. Yes, there was a ton of terrible stuff tons of terrible stuff but there was a lot of greatness there and there was a lot of open creativity and the influx of cartoons that were on television i'm not just talking like nickelodeon and when disney channel was just like a wee baby and stuff like that there was no cartoon network and, it, and when cartoon network started they were still young and they were so scared to air anything new they started dexter's laboratory and swat cats on tbs Hmm. Every single regular antenna aired channel, they would have cartoons on in the morning, they would have cartoons on in the afternoon, period. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, that's because kids today aren't interested in cartoons and toys. They only want to play video games, listen to rap music. And- <laughs> <laughs> now, you know that's a bunch of bullshit. Too. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was doing my impression of an old person. Oh, no, you know, it's, it's all right. My, you know, my dad says that stuff, too. And I'm like, you know what? There was, I always made time. Yeah, you know, I yeah. mean, we live in it. Now, granted, once again, we do live in, in a different era where people, parents keep their kids so busy they really can't be kids. You know, you have you have a lot of parents out there, and I mean, good for them. You want your kids to exercise and not, you know, and not sit on their duff all day. That's cool. Pick them up from school, take them to soccer practice. You know, have them do this, have them do that, have, then have them go play back. You know, it's just like this is constant schedule. They're on, they're on a schedule from the time they get up, from the time they get home, you know, to the time they go to practice, the time they eat dinner, the time they go to bed. That's cool. I understand. Plus homework. I understand. You want to keep a child busy. You want to keep a child going. But I just remember, like with me, I did all that stuff too. But I still always I still always had a moment for cartoons in the afternoon. I had a moment for my comic books. I had a moment for my video games. I'm not, you know, and I'm not saying it's like that in every household, but it's just like I always had that time. So no, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. This one wasn't originally on my list. I uh, saw this. Uh, Crack.com did this awesome list of the 10 most disastrous Saturday morning cartoon adaptations. And since we're not, I, I want to keep it on the theme that we started with Street Frogs and the Kid and Play. It was just rap based cartoons. Yes. And here's one you may have heard of, may not have, uh, Hammer Man. Oh. Yeah, that's right. It was when MC Hammer had a cartoon that ran for 13 episodes about how he used to fight crime with magical shoes. Yeah. (laughs) On ABC. Oh, yeah. Uh, Crack's description of the title sequence is awesome. They go, if you ever wanted to see what the intro to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air would have looked like if it told a convoluted backstory about crime fighting, was wrapped by someone making the lyrics, lyrics up as he went along and directed by whoever handles production for Al-Qaeda, well, have at it. <laughs> you know, what's sad, oh what's sad is, is that I remember that cartoon because, like, the, the theme song was real simple. It just, he would go, he would scream, Hammer Man. Hammer. Hammer. Hammer man. Hammer. And I remember one line, well, one set of the song specifically is like, whenever there's a crime, some crooks are going to do time. And some other cra- And I was just like, no, Hammer. I was like, come on, man. Come on. <laughs> I was like, look, I understand. You know, the, the dude was uber popular. ABC was like, you know, let's give him a cartoon. And they also had this dude that was supposedly like kind of like James Brown in it. And I was just yeah, like. Yeah, Soul Man or something like that who had the shoes first. Yeah. Oh, my God. And the animation. My God. Like, they do crap like that in Flash now with kids in high school on a nothing budget. I mean, yeah. it was a little like still shot to still shot to still shot and some occasional animation. Mm-hmm. It was bad and i watched every damned episode (laughs) See, i knew better i watched i watched the first episode and i was just like you know and i can't do it and i really tried i was like you know i i wanted i wanted to give amorous props i'm like yo you've really made it you got a cartoon that's how popular you are you are the new age wolfman jack you got a cartoon (laughs) you got a car see now that's one people really forgot about this like who the hell is wolfman jack anyway but he got a cartoon. I'm like, whoa! And I watched it. And I was just, I can't, I, can't, I couldn't deal. I really couldn't deal. I just, I just said, this is just way, way too much for me. So I had to let it go. It's crazy. It's insane. It's got all those bizarre things that I would like accept and love any day of the week. But there was just this like line of 
just I just I couldn't do I couldn't I couldn't pull myself to watch that. I said I stopped. I just stopped. Yeah, I'm a couple of years younger than you, so I was at that age where I would still just watch every single thing put in front of me. <laughs> so like I was like, all right, yeah, I'll watch this. I like MC Hammer. I I I have his audio cassettes. They sound fun, <laughs> and, you know. And so I, I just watched it, and you know. Oh no, it's it's cool, dude. It's cool. Trust me. You may not be too familiar with this cartoon. All right. Um, you do know this cartoon, though. The cartoon is Tom and Jerry. And uh-huh. I'm going to take it to two eras. I'm going to take it to the Gene Deitched or Deitched era in 1960 to 1962. 13 okay. episodes were made. This was the precursor to the Chuck Jones era of Tom and Jerry. Okay. Okay, because the Chuck Jones era was from like 63 to 67. The Gene Deitched or Ditched era was from 1960 to 1962. Here's the deal. After uh, stuff with MGM, or or sorry, during the Hanna-Barbera slash MGM era from like the 40s to like, you know, 19, the like to the late 1950s. Well, let me rephrase that. There's a long period of time where Hanna and Barbera were doing Tom and Jerry cartoons for MGM. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was in 1960, MGM wanted to bring back the Tom and Jerry franchise. And the thing is, is that they were going to do it on a budget. You know, this wasn't going to be super theatrical as like the original MGM Tom and Jerry shorts were. It was going to be cheaper and it was just going to be done with the quickness. So -hmm. what they did is they contacted these uh, cats from, from Europe. It was a studio called Rembrandt Films and they were supposed to produce 13 Tom and Jerry shorts. They were all directed by a Prague-based animator by the name of Gene Deitched, and they were produced and they were produced by um, a gentleman by the name of I think William L. Snyder. And these cartoons were made in like Czechoslovakia. Okay. <laughs> now I these were see I no, I no, no. I'm sorry I'm just cracking up because when you said like like Czechoslovakia I had that like it, that flashback to that Simpsons episode when Krusty the Clown lost the rights to uh, <laughs> Itchy and Scratchy so yes. he had the Eastern European worker in Parasite. Yes, yes. No, no, no. It wasn't that bad. It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't that bad. Let me make that clear. They, these episodes weren't that bad at all. They were just bizarre to me because when I was com- when I was coming up as a kid regular television because you know we didn't have cable in the beginning we just had just standard television and your local channels would normally have like a they would buy up a block of tom and jerry cartoons and play them over and over and over again i would get to see the classic mgm tom and jerry's the chuck jones tom and jerry's and there was a period of time where they constantly played the gene ditched era now what happened was was that because it was the 60s and like MGM feared about being uh, linked to communism, the uh, production company had to like alter the names of the production team for these shorts. So mm. like, so say for instance, some, a name like, um, and I'm going to butcher this, but like uh, Vakla Lady would be Victor Little. Every Tom and Jerry cartoon would have the made in, made in Hollywood USA phrase at the end of it. These didn't. And they also didn't tell you where the studio was for for these episodes. Once again, because it was it was in Czechoslovakia, and you know you're dealing with communism at that time, so you weren't going to hear anything about that. Here are the bizarre things about these shorts. First off, the animation style, because they were on a real tight budget, ten thousand dollars per episode. Okay, 
which was cheap. You have like a lot of high speed footage, which at times, like when you're watching it, it, you know, some things like look like a really big blur. And sometimes that also led to stiff or sick or choppy animation. But the really odd thing about the cartoon that used to get to me was, was that like the sound, the way they use sound in the cartoon, basically it was, sound was used as a way to carry the cartoon because of its low production budget. They're like, okay, if the animation doesn't look the greatest, let's have the sound beef up the actual production itself. Not only that, but like if you had like a human character in the episode, you never really heard them talk. It was more of a grumble or a mumble. A lot of the episodes, like there was this guy who owned uh, Tom. Oh, what's, oh, what was it? What was it? What was his name? Oh, I can't remember his name, but he was just really, really, really grumpy. And he would always beat the crap out of Tom. <laughs> you know, he would always just... Why am I laughing at that? That's awful. He always, you know, he would always beat the crap out of Tom. And so like... So Tom in these cartoons was never really looked at as a threat to Jerry. Yeah, he tried to get Jerry, but he would never get him really. And so and Tom would only hurt himself when he, you know, when he would try to get Jerry, just like the regular cartoons. The funny thing about it is, and they they did things you would ne- you would never really see you you wouldn't see nowadays in a cartoon. Like my favorite one, and this is the reason why I remember this era of Tom and Jerry so much. There was an episode. And I think the episode was called The Tom and Jerry Cartoon Kit. This is one of my favorite, favorite Tom and Jerry cartoons of all time. And once again, directed by Gene Deached. There's not a, there's not a lot of backdrops. There's no really, essentially, there's no backgrounds. It's just a plain background. The episode starts, there's a box. And the box says The Tom and Jerry Cartoon Kit. You open up the box. There's Tom. There's Jerry. A cup of coffee. A pack of cigarettes. Um, like a rope, you just I'm, and, and like it freaked me out because I'm like, what is this? They would <laughs> never do that nowadays, never. <laughs> and it was literally the Tom and Tom and Jerry cartoon kit where you could where you could build a Tom and Jerry adventure. That's what the episode was about. There was an episode where that took place in the Wild Wild West, <laughs> and there was a scene where, and you've seen this in, in a lot of Bugs Bunny cartoons. You know, Jerry would run down the ba- run down to the basement, turn off the lights. Tom would turn on the lights and run down, you know, turn on the lights and run down halfway. Jerry would turn them off. Tom goes back up, turns them on, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually Jerry tricks Tom and Tom falls down the steps. As a kid, I laughed so hard. I would laugh until tears would come out of my eyes. <laughs> um, he went to outer space. Uh, Tom and Jerry went to outer space, uh, bumped heads with the Russians. It just, all the cartoons were bizarre. Like, only one of these shorts has ever made it to, I think, DVD. And that was, I think, the Tom and Jerry cartoon kit. That's it. Hmm. A lot of people and a lot of the a lot of the pros literally just bash this batch of uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons. As a matter of fact, Paul Kupperberg of Comic Mix called the shorts perfectly dreadful and too often released, <laughs> as well as a result of cheap labor. Labor. Huh. Now, Gene Deitch has said he's defended the films in the New York Times. He had once said. All my experts say that my shorts are the worst of, of the Tom and Jerry's. I was a UPA man, and UPA stood for the, uh, oh, one second, let me think, the United Productions of America, which was like a really big animation firm. And he said, my whole background was much closer to, you know, Czechoslovakian animation. Tom and Jerry, I always considered Drek, but they had great timing, facial expressions, double takes, squash, and stretch, to which he said these were ch- techniques that the Czechs had to learn. 
and the Czech and the Czechoslovakian style had nothing to do in common, nothing in common with these gag-driven cartoons. So they had to learn the ins and outs of American animation, slapstick American animation, because they never really did that before. So for what they did on a $10,000 budget per episode, when you look at it that way, it's really fascinating. But these are really hard to find, and they're, you probably, like I said, you probably never see them again, and I really doubt Warner Brothers will put these in a collection ever. And the other era cartoons, which you may be familiar, familiar with, this is from 1980 to 1982, it was the Filmation era. Yes, okay. Filmation. Filmation actually got a hold of Tom and Jerry. Um, in association with MGM, they produced a Tom and Jerry cartoon called the Tom and Jerry Comedy Show. And with any Filmation cartoon, you know the deal. There is a set template. There's going to be reused footage. You know, what you see is what you get. They brought back the original, the original style of the chase, a little bit more slapstick, but you got new Drooby cartoons. Let's see, you also had Spike show up. And for the first time since the original... MGM shorts, Barney the Bear had his own cartoons too. I just remember that because of the limitations on the animation, you know, Filmation did all they could with what they had. As a kid, I thought it was great. It does not play well now. It does uh. it does not play well at all. If you remember stuff like the new adventures of Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll, that's the animation style right there. Huh. And okay. so it it wasn't the best, but those were two eras that I think people really don't remember. So that's why I wanted to talk about those. Like a lot of that stuff, the thing is, unless it's like, you know, like the Tom and Jerry kids or, you know, like the new stuff from later on when the animation could be slicker, a lot of that stuff just kind of blurs together for me. But mm-hmm. admittedly, it's been a while since I've seen a lot of that stuff. So if I was probably to look at, look at it again with a more critical eye, I could probably tell things apart. Plus, I hate those filthy, filthy commies, so I'd want to know which ones they made, so I can never watch them again. Uh, did you say Tom and Jerry kids? Yeah, remember that one? God, they should be ashamed of themselves. See, this is this is what happens when Muppet Babies becomes popular. Everybody makes their own version. <laughs> I actually thought that's what you were going to talk about, was, was Tom and Jerry kids. It's uh, like the era people didn't hear about. Oh, no, dude. Everybody knew about that. God, you couldn't escape Tom and Jerry Kids. TBS had it on loop. It was like syndicated on top of that. I was like, if I saw that one more time, I swear I was just like, I'm going to find the producer and punch him in the face. I just, you know, I I understood the purpose. I know why it came out. I just, I couldn't stand it because I'm like, look, you know, every now and then on the original Tom and Jerry cartoons, yeah, they would be friends and team up. And I understood that. But every episode, they had to end up being friends. I'm like, it's Tom and Jerry. They're supposed to hate each other. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that ruins children's morals, Sean. <laughs> you hate children? Do you want them to grow up to be druggies and criminals? Yes. Wow. Huh. If, it mean, if it means I get great cartoons, yes. Well, I'm sure they'll show all those great cartoons to you in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> Bring it. Oh, snap, it's on. Should I sing the Tom and Jerry Kids theme song? No, because it's already stuck in my head. It's already (laughs) stuck in my head. Mission accomplished. Yep. Got to be there where all the action is. Tom and Jerry Kids. Damn it, I can't. (laughs) But, uh, But please, continue, sir. This is one I never watched, but I remember the commercials for it. And I never watched it for reasons that will become clear to you as I describe them. And if not, I'll just tell you at the end anyway. Samurai Pizza Cats. 
yes, yes. That's right. I went there. I went there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Samurai Pizza Cats was an anime of all things that aired in America from February 1990 to February of 1991. And it was um, it brought over to America by Saban. Yep. It was the show where they had three anthropomorphic cats who basically protected the city of Little Tokyo from crime and ran a pizzeria on the side. Now, my memories of this show obviously did not, did not take into account the fact that I've since learned about a lot of Japanese animation since then. So I, I first thought this show was basically just created by committee to challenge the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, it was only later that I found out that yes, it was cr- it was brought over to America to challenge the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If the samurai and the pizza didn't give you a clue, <laughs> yes. The the thing that I love the best about this, when finding out the research about this, is that when they were making this show, they didn't have the the Japanese scripts to for when they were dubbing. Oh. So they just made stuff up because they they made stuff up based on the animation. They couldn't figure out what was going on, and they just kind of dubbed their own script based on that. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, what do you say to that? They didn't have the scripts to the show that they brought over to to compete against the biggest animation juggernaut of the 1990s, so they made shit up as they went along. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Th- yeah that, would, that would imply, to, as to why, the uh, theme song took jabs at the turtles yes exactly i was going to bring that up too uh and apparently it was more comedic in america than it was um in japan it was a comedy there but they they made it more so because of the dubbing trouble they have Mm. and a lot of the times which is why like the narrator would like comment on like the japanese like like the written language or the sight gags and like sometimes they'd complain about the strange plots. Okay, so you brought not only is your show just de- de- obviously a cheap uh, a cheap cash employ, you're just making it up as you go along because you forgot to bring the scripts over, and now you're also being racist about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> See, I did not know. It was it was that bad as far as them not having scripts and just saying, let's make something up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Oh, and I forgot to mention the piece de resistance is they spelled samurai wrong in the credits. They spelled it S A M U R I. When I was watching the when I was watching the thing, I'm like, that no way that can't be spelled wrong. So I was paying close attention to it as as the name kept flashing up in the opening. I'm like, uh-huh. oh my god, samurai is misspelled. Oh my. See. Once again, if somebody does something popular and it takes the world by storm, what do you do? You make a copycat. Or you don't even do that much. You bring a copycat over for discount and make your own dialogue. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's Thank how, you, Hank Saban. <laughs> that's how powerful the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were then. Hell, they're, still, they're still a juggernaut now. But that goes to the power of independent creation. There, you know, there's no Eastman and Laird, there's no Turtles, and there's no independent boom, okay? You don't have, you don't have Turtles, you don't have Street Sharks, you don't have Samurai Pizza Cats coming from Japan, you don't have uh, Bucky O'Hare, you, none of that. You don't get any of that. No. If you don't, ha- if you don't have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
Absolutely. Oh, here's another awesome little tidbit. I just came up with this episode. Michael Arrington, one of the show's writers, also sang the theme song. According to Andy Thomas, Arrington had a few drinks before the recording session before the song started, and as a result, accidentally repeated some of the lyrics. Oh. <laughs> Arrington recorded as doing his Paul Lind voice. <laughs> Uh, apparently, it even got made it onto an English DVD uh, back in 2004 with five episodes of the series, and a three D a three DVD release came out in 07. But I have no idea if they've come out any more since then. How does that get a three DVD release? And 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 I can't get I can't get raw tunage on DVD. <laughs> well, the, the samurai pizza cats don't have to deal with the fierce juggernaut that is a Belgian lawyer. Good point. <laughs> Point well taken, sir. All right, you got me there. That was a good one. You got me. Yeah, you got because that was a terrible ass cartoon. That was um, god awful. <laughs> um, there was a show, and the year was 1987, and. A company like called Atlantic Kushner Lock, or Atlantic, they produced it. Tonka slash Hasbro did the toys, and it was and it's basically basically based off of a toy line from Bandai. The cartoon took place in the future in 2007, and there was this guy who was like this renegade scientist by the name of Dr. James Bent, and he used a space shuttle to drop these zone generators across half the Earth a region called the spiral zone due to its shape. And in the zone generators, there was this, um, you know, these um, dark mists were created. And in, within the spiral zone, uh, people were transformed into quote unquote zoners, which were life, which were people with lifeless yellow eyes and strange red patches or lesions on their faces. Um, and according to Wikipedia, because they have no will to resist, Dr. James Bent, now known as Overlord, makes them a slave army and controls them from the Chrysler building in New York City. Now, because of the zone generators, um, he's able to create this army called like the Black Widows. He's, he's got these like zombie-like dudes and the Black Widows, which consist of Bandit, Duchess Dyer, uh, Razorback, and Reaper. But there's still, there's a team of people from a, co- a collective a collective from around the world that can put Overlord in his place and destroy the Spiral Zone once and for all. And this also helped the United States and Soviet Union come together along with uh, the British government. And they produced the Spiral Force known as the Zone Raiders with Commander Dirk Courage and uh, Master Sergeant Tank Schmidt, Lieutenant Hirotaka, uh, Second Lieutenant Max Jones, and Corporal Katerina Anastasia. And later they'd be joined by Ned Tucker and Lieutenant Benjamin Davis Franklin. And they had cool-ass vehicles. And the show was called Spiral Zone. And to this day, I still don't know what the fuck this cartoon is about, even though I just told you what it was about. All I know is, is that this cartoon was dark. Okay? For 1987, this cartoon was very dark a little deep in some spots and sometimes a little disturbing because you're dealing with matter where you're kind of dealing with zombies but they're not zombies you're dealing with a dreadful world you're dealing with the united states and russia because we're still i want to say we're 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 getting out of the cold era the cold war era but we're still in it in a way 
during that period, during 1987, if I remember right. My history is not the strongest right now, and I apologize. So you got the Russians talking to, you, to the United States and actually working together. You got the British people coming in, um, you know, to help as well. And so there's like the state of paranoia, you know, and people are like, well, how can we like bring this paranoia about? I know. Let's make a cartoon. So <laughs> so then you have Spiral Zone, this cartoon, which is based off of, you know, Japanese toys. And I remember that the cartoon, it did have a full run, 65 episodes airing five days a week. And they literally blew their load. I mean, just boom, boom, boom. boom. I mean, they just literally just put them out, put them out, put them out, put them out, put them out. There were no breaks. Five days a week. They were on for like wow. 13 straight weeks because it ran from <laughs> September to December. I remember this because when it ended, it was done. And I guess the I guess the toys didn't sell very well. So they're like, well, there's no need to make this anymore. And it, and it was completely done. But it has like a it has a cult following so much. So I remember that um, in 2006, I remember this. And I don't even need Wikipedia's help for this one. Um, the, uh, the, sh- the show supervising a director, a gentleman by the name of Pierre Dessel, got the rights to release all 65 episodes and, and like some of the bonus materials on a DVD set. And because like what happened was, was that um, he provided because uh, like the site, the site's operator was able to get the original master tapes of the series from Pierre DeSales to make these DVD sets. That's the and, and that's how they made them. So like they didn't go through Hasbro. They didn't go through Tonka. You know, the, the, the supervising director's like, yeah, I got all the masters right here, bro. Go ahead. Make these put these on DVD. And I remember I almost bought them. I almost bought them, and I guess that this guy, Pierre DeSales, tried to get the rights back from Tonka and Hasbro, and they never responded to him. So I don't know if they just think, if Tonka and Hasbro think, you know, we just going to sit on this because one day this is going to be gold, and we're going to bring it back. <laughs> no, player, that ain't the case. You know, you just need to go ahead and just give them up and just like let these dudes make proper DVDs of this. But I did enjoy the show. I, I really, it's just, it's just, it was just so bizarre and it was so dark. You know, and I might, I might joke that I might not, you know, I didn't understand what the fuck was going on, but it was, it was good and I liked it. I never even heard of this show until now. Yo, man, completely syndicated. Um, a lot of areas did not play it. That was another problem too. A lot of spot, a lot of, um, there were a lot of parent groups that had issues with this show. Um, because they felt it was too dark and they felt it was too violent, so it didn't Doesn't surprise me. It didn't play in a lot of areas. In some areas, it would play. It would play like six or six thirty in the morning. Huh. So you never saw it. And I remember sometimes, like depending on like, cause like a lot of our channel when we, you know when cable was really starting to pick up in the eighties, we would get affiliates from like other states. And we had an affiliate when I lived in Ohio. It was uh, like WTTV Channel 4 in Indianapolis. We would get them. So we could watch G.I. Joe locally in Ohio at like 4 and then turn it on the WTTV Channel 4 and watch G.I. Joe again at 5. And it would be a completely different episode. But they aired Spiral Zone at like 5.30 in the morning. Hmm. So, so yeah, man, it was, it was, what really were you doing weird. up at five 30 in the morning to watch this cartoon? Hey man, I thought it was cool. So like I got up, I would, I would, I, I wouldn't, sometimes I would get up if I was up cause I had to be at school by like seven. So I would just get up and just watch it and then go make, you know, get, cook myself some breakfast, get my clothes on and go. Or Jeez. I, or I would just, you know, borrow, like borrow my uncle's VCR, get a VHS tape, set the timer, you know, when you had to like set the timer and then leave it on the channel. Mm-hmm. You know, because <laughs> the then v- you get like fourteen hours or whatever crap came after. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, those are the days. 
So, uh, uh, so yeah, man. But yeah, spiral zone. And you're pulling all these things out of just like nowhere that I have no. I, I, I you, know, you could be making all this stuff up. You could have just like gone on to Wikipedia and just inv- created these entries just to mess with me. No, no, sir. They even had a, they even had a limited series DC comic. Uh, well, I have DC Comics that it can't be bad. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. At this point, I'm sure you've heard of this one, but this is one of the things that was lost to the mist of time to me until, again, I started researching things for this episode. It ran for just one year back in, I think, 1987 or 86. Um, Let me look up the exact year for you. Um, It was based on a popular movie uh, of the time uh, or a movie series of the time, but it was more youth-oriented than the movies were. This would be Rambo and the Forces of Freedom. Oh, but of course, you done hit it right on the head, brother. Go ahead. Yeah, this was instead of a discussion about, you know, of a Vietnam vet trying to re- readjust to life back in America and going crazy and shooting arrows with dynamite at people. Uh, he teamed up with some dudes who were not unlike G.I. Joe and fought evil. Protected the innocent, very unsylvester Stallone like. <laughs> um, they they fought a group of oh they were neo Nazis no less. They were a neo Nazi organization named Savage that they fought. Mm-hmm. Lots of you know fictional countries and and backstories, which was the style of the time. You know to to kind of mask where uh, you know who they really supposed to be. They, there was actual hand to hand combat and gunfire with real looking guns, but nobody uh, nobody really got killed. Nobody died, of course. Rambo, oh, this is good. Rambo used violence as a last resort and relied on his resources and guiled out with his opponents in yeah. a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They to try to make it sound like he's MacGyver up in that cartoon. No. Yeah, seriously. No. Which may have been different from, you know, First Blood 2 or the Rambo of 2008 or whatever year that came out. Yeah. Um, I'll say it once and I'll say it again. How in the hell... Do you make a cartoon based off of a man who suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder? How is this possible? How? It's like RoboCop having a cartoon. And he did have one. Oh, I know. I watched RoboCop the cartoon. You know, RoboCop and like the RoboForce or something like that. I'm like, how is this humanly possible? Rambo was ultra-violent. I'm not even talking about the G.I. Joe-esque number two, especially number three. That's just out of fucking control compared to the first one, which is a very serious, serious film. How do you make a cartoon out of this? It's the first R-rated film to be uh, turned into a children's cartoon. Now, that I did not know. Every episode had a life lesson and a moral to make it okay for the children. But, of course, that's what you had to do back then. (laughs) Yeah, even more so when you're creating a cartoon based on an R-rated movie about a Vietnam vet with PTSD. (laughs) Exactly. Who would then shoot bow and arrows with dynamite on them or whatever crap it was. Was that the Dukes of Hazzard? I don't even know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. I just remember that um, there was also a toy line for, for Rambo. There was a toy line. And originally, uh, Rocky Balboa, you know, Sly, Rocky Balboa, the Rocky Balboa character was supposed to become a part of G.I. Joe. Yeah, Joe, I remember that. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. And then it fell through. Because if you go back and find the, the Marvel Comics Battle of Order, which is essentially like the G.I. Joe, uh, you know, official handbook, there 
one of the books has Rocky Balboa in it. And he's got like the boxing gloves on. He's got like sweatpants. He's got like the headband on. But it's Rocky Balboa. I know. I got the books. So it was supposed to happen and then it didn't. So I guess that, I guess, you know, Caroloco, the production company at times, like, you know what? He may not be a part of Joe, but fuck it. Let's give him a, let's give Rambo a cartoon. Yeah. And, and actually, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Go, 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 go. I was going to say that the, there's a psychology advisor on this show saying that they wouldn't understand the whole, surprise, surprise, the whole PTSD thing. So they recommend that the cartoon not make any references to Vietnam, POWs, or Rambo's experiences in First Blood or First Blood Part 2. Exactly. And uh, even though the events of the cartoon are not mentioned in the films that came after its run, action sequences and storylines from the animated show found their way into Rambo 3 and 2008's Rambo. That's when the heat was starting to, starting to pour on these cartoons, man, because syndicated cartoons were everywhere. And yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, what a surprise. The black guy was an engineer <laughs> and a race car driver. Yeah, and the Asian chick could do martial arts. Yes. And they don't give specifics about Chief, the Indian ally of Rambo, but I'm going to suspect that he gave Sage pieces of advice at key times. Oh, but of course, yes. <laughs> See, you, you you know without even watching. See, <laughs> you, you've already hit it right on the head. Oh, yeah, uh, you know what Rambo was doing before he was called in to each mission? What? He was either tending to an animal or helping children with survival training. <laughs> oh. And uh, Colonel Troutman is actually in the cartoon. Yep, sure was. Because Troutman gave him the missions, if I remember right from the episodes I watched. But once again, that was another cartoon burned through the episodes. Because basically it was like this. In order to be syndicated back then, you had to make between 52 to 65 episodes. And basically it was felt that after you made 65 episodes, you couldn't make money off of it anymore. So you went ahead, you just made your 65 episodes, got your money, and walked off. That's weird. Yeah, that's the, that's the way it was back then. That was it. So once they were done, they were done. It, you know, it's like that with the Centurions. The Centurions were, were the same way. 65 episodes, done. A lot of the syndicated stuff, unless it had, you know, like a, a, a production company or a studio behind it that understood how money would flow behind the popularity of a cartoon series like uh, Columbia slash Sony with the real Ghostbusters, that went from Saturday mornings to syndication and Saturday mornings to back to Saturdays because the toys still sold because like as the syndicated run started to dry out and they're like we're not okay we're not making money on this anymore back to Saturdays only toys were still selling goes away for a few years comes comes back syndicated as extreme ghostbusters and stays on until the toy stops selling and goes away mm-hmm. so like I said but back then before real ghostbusters normally car- cartoon runs were this you syndicated 65 episodes done 65 episodes done toy or no toy 65 episodes done so, uh, yeah, that's the way it was. Know. Oh, here you go. This show is actually was released on DVD back in 2005. A six-disc set. By who? Or, um, Lionsgate Entertainment. Huh. Yeah, they did six DVDs over the course of 2005, two each in June, September, and December of that year, and it collected the whole run. You know what? I'm going to see if this still exists. It's in Region 1, too. We're gonna, both of us are going to be looking for this thing at the same time, and all of a sudden, Amazon's going to be like, whoa, this is suddenly popular. <laughs> Dude, you can still buy it new. It's like ten, like it's $8.50 for like each disc, because they're on sale. Right? Like eight, $8.50 to $9.00. I'm going to take you to 1996. Just uh, yeah, I just turned 21. 
I was working a lot. Come home from work one day and going to school. I turn on the TV and there's this little blonde headed kid running around like going on spy adventures. It's like, this is silly. Little did I know this cartoon was called Bruno the Kid. Hmm. Bruno the Kid was the adventures of a young Bruce Willis. Because as we all know, Bruce one, one of Bruce Willis's nicknames is Bruno. Hold on, my brain just caught up to what you were saying. What the hell? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's called it's called Bruno the Kid uh, with the voice of Bruce Willis. And also had a vo- a voices by Mark Hamill and a gentleman by the name of Tony Jay who was really heavy into, into voiceovers for animation. It had a young Bruce Willis who became like a like super secret top spy for an espionage organization. It was named Globe, I think. And he had, a, Bruno had a computer, he had like a special watch. And, <laughs> and the thing is, is that the people, if I remember right, the people that ran the organization Globe, they didn't know he was a kid because he would always talk to them via computer. And the computer had like this like simulated image of a full grown man and like that kind of looked like Bruce Willis. So they never knew that he was a kid doing these adventures. And he also lived that double life with his parents too, you know, because he was a spy and he couldn't tell his parents as well. Kind of like with Dexter's Laboratory where, or Dexter's Laboratory, parents were completely aloof that, you know, that he did all these experiments or whatever. Kind of like that. Bruce Willis was the executive producer and co-wrote and sang the theme song for Bruno the Kid. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, Bruno the Kid. There really isn't anything else I can say about this cartoon because it pretty much explains itself. Yeah, yeah, it really does. It makes James Bond Jr. look amazing. Wow, and that was going to almost be one of mine. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I have nothing else to say, so the floor is yours. Okay, well, well, let's go, let's go with that. James Bond Jr. <laughs> um, that was actually on my list. And as you can probably tell, uh, it was a story about James Bond's youthful nephew, James Bond Jr., who uh, fought the forces of scum, not Spectre or anything like that, with his buddy IQ, who was Q's grandson, Gordo Leiter, who was the son of Felix Leiter, uh, who you may remember from the movies, and a couple of other characters. They also they fought variations of Bond villains, including Jaws and Knickknack used to team up. I don't know if you remember Jaws, Richard mm-hmm. Keel. Yes. Do you remember who Knickknack was? No, I don't remember. He was the midget who ran around with Christopher Lee in The Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, the guy played by Hervé Villachez. Goldfinger sometimes appeared with Odd Job. He had a daughter named Goldie Finger. <laughs> um, they had a lot of original They had some unique characters, too. And, and they basically got a whole bunch of wacky gadgets, fought evil, and saved the day, all while making it to class on time. I'm trying to understand. Even as you know, even when it came out, I didn't understand. I'm like, how is he called James Bond Jr., but it's not James Bond's son? I'm like, okay, well, his... I'm like, okay. Then, then when you, you just explained it to me, so now I know. But still, that didn't make sense to me. Because even as a kid, I was like, James Bond ain't have no kids. You know, actually, uh, you're 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 coming after the uh, James Bond nerd here. Actually, James Bond does have a son he doesn't know about. Ooh. He knocked up some chicken. Uh, you only lived twice when he was an amnesiac. Ah, and she never told him that he was he had a kid. Look at you, look at you. I did not know this. Bring it, bring in the James Bond heat. Oh yeah, I did not know this. Well, thank you. Now I'm glad you cleared that up. I thought that James Bond Junior was a good idea for kids. I I really did. I thought it was a good idea for kids to one get kids in the bond eventually 
It's like, look, here's a primer. Have fun. And then when you, when you get a little bit older, go watch some James Bond. I thought that, I really thought that was a good idea. The execution was not the greatest. And not only that, it was one of those cartoons that when it came out, you couldn't punch anybody. You couldn't kick anybody in the face. Because, you know, there, there was an era where you just couldn't do stuff like that. And then, and even in, like, the late 80s, early 90s. Because, like, you know, G.I. Joe used to punch people all the time. I'm like, God, I love this cartoon. Because it was just, it was violent and it was fun and it was crazy. But people wanted the violence toned down. Even though Rambo was ultra-violent. Anyway, they wanted it toned down. So stuff with James Bond Jr., you couldn't really punch, couldn't really kick. You could topple somebody or pounce on somebody. But that was really about it. Um, it, or, you know, leave them under a rocket ship that's about to blast off and, you know, roast them alive with rocket fuel. But, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, what, yeah, what, yeah, exactly. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know, it was, it was like the, um, remember when they came out, a few years later, they came out with a new version of Speed Racer? And uh, no. 1993, there was, a, there was a new version of Speed Racer called The New Adventures of Speed Racer. It was American. It was, it was, it was extremely Americanized, more contemporary, and it was bad. It was really bad. It, 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 once again, it's one of those things where, to this day, I think there are a lot of people that really don't understand the original Speed Racer, and it's just something that is more of a cult thing that is never truly translated. Honestly, it is never truly translated into the American lexicon of animation and pop culture. People know it, people see it, but they don't really. I don't want to say they don't give a damn, but a lot of people really don't give a damn. <laughs> uh, 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 about Speed Racer. You know, like, I like Speed Racer, and I've watched those old Speed Racer episodes. Like, the animation is inex- inexpensive for its time, so, you know, it's a give and take. Some episodes look wonderful. Some episodes look awful. And so, you kind of have to, like, you know, take the good with the bad. But still, it was like this cult classic, and so many people have tried to renovate it again and again and again. And I remember in 1993, because James Bond Jr. was a hit slash miss, because it did have toys, did have a cartoon, you know, the new adventures of speed racer came out it was just bad it was like 13 episodes in and it was just done because there was no interest in this whatsoever i'm like speed racer don't fight robots and mutants i'm like speed racer races that's his job he's supposed to race <laughs> if you want to make it gi joe where speed racers like fighting those robots called bats and all this other stuff i'm like well you need to do some work and like you know they did stuff with it like talk about gang violence and shit i'm like this is speed racer <laughs> what the fuck does gang violence have to do with speed racer he's supposed to be racing and be yelling at his dad and his dad yelling at him and mom getting in the way and you know and the chimp hiding in the trunk yes that. yeah i don't talk about no gang violence i'm a speed racer so <laughs> you know so you know that that did not sit well with me in 1993 okay it, it just it just didn't it did not sit well with me i was bitter i thought needless don't to say. say yeah exactly so I, I was just never a fan i'm sorry I, I i couldn't co-sign but you talking about james bond jr made me you know made me bring that up so i i, I had to talk about that for a second uh, that's all good Um, so what else can I say about James Bond Jr.? I mean, or even though there were um, there were chicks in this thing, he was either platonic or rebuffed them. Um, so he's got to be a disappointment to his uncle. Yes. 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what can I say? I did like that they, they do little little touches that le- that are like um not the the characters who were related to real Bond characters. They even gave like Q's grandson Q's real last name. They call him Boothroyd. Huh. Yeah. Because um, in in the first in the first movie, he was Major Boothroyd, head of Q Division, and I think he was called that in the books too. I can't remember. It's been a little while since I've read them. I uh, can only imagine what a kid going from this cartoon to the movies may have thought, but uh, <laughs> lots more shootings, I'll tell you that for sure. Yeah, definitely. I hope that uh, everybody that's listening to it has enjoyed it. There were a lot of other car- obscure cartoons or cartoons you may not have heard of that were on my list that you might want to like. You know, go take a look at or remember, you know, stuff like Space Cats, uh, which was produced by the gentleman. I love Space Cats. Oh, so you knew about it too? Oh hell yeah! Okay, okay, yeah. Produced by the, by uh, the gentleman that created Alf, um, and it also had uh, Charles Nelson Riley. He was like that uh, that big om- omnibus head Dork. or whatever. Dork, yeah. The disembodied, omnipotent ruler of cats. Yeah, it was so. Why do I remember this? Oh my god! That was that that was the time where NBC turned off the switch. They were like, "We're not funding any cartoons anymore. It's either Saved by the Bell for six hours on Saturday or today." That's it. And they cut off the switch. But yes, stuff like Space Cats, Street Sharks, a drama called Invasion America, which was on WB. And they played, they were half hour episodes, but they played them in consecutive hours. Like one week you get two episodes, another week two episodes, another week two episodes. And there was like a half hour finale. And they left it kind of like on a cliffhanger. It was like book one. It was then repackaged for Kids WB and a lot of the violence was taken out. But this was a great Great series, uh, co-produced by uh, Steven Spielberg and I forget the other, and Harv Bennett. Yeah, Steven wow. Spielberg and Harv Bennett. So it had to do with aliens. It, it, it had to do with, with aliens, and it was really, I thought it was really good. Also had the voices of uh, Leonard, Leonard Nimoy was a voice in that show, too. Awesome. Good for him. The uh, Double, Double Dragon had an animated cartoon. You talked about Fantastic Max. There was also Mighty Max. You get a chance, go back and go look at some of the cartoons that you watched back in the day that you may have forgot about so you can laugh at all the bullshit you watched um, or, or, <laughs> or, or enjoy the stuff that you watch. So, But Luke, thanks again for coming on the show. And, hey, thanks um, for having me on the show. I'm glad to finally be able to do it. Oh, hey, hey, man, you're welcome. It's a good time. Hey, remind people where they can get your podcast and where they can get your books. Okay, um, you can uh, get the podcast, The Incredible Hulk Cast and The Trip, at the uh, Deliberate Noise Network, which is www.deliberatenoise.com. You can read Moon Freight 3 every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at moonfreight3.com. And you can get the uh, MF3 Volume 1 and the Gang from the Store, the complete collection at indieplanet.com. Luke, thanks again for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.